Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 110. Today in the show, we're joined by David Draper, a freelance outdoor writer and wild game cooking expert to discuss open country whitetail hunting and our favorite food, venison. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sika Gear. And today we're joined by freelance writer, avid hunter, and serious wild game aficionado, David Draper. You've likely seen him in the pages of Field and Stream and a number of other media outlets. And today David is going to be chatting with us about his experiences deer hunting in his home state of Nebraska and some of the other great state or great plains states. Uh, we're going to talk about how to have success in that part of the country. And we're also going to talk a bit about venison and cooking wild game. So, uh, Dan, you're back in the fold. What do you think I'm about ba- this plan? I'm back. I'm all good, man. I'm, I'm, I love talking about food. Okay. Check. <laughs> I love talking about hunting, especially when there's a possibility me and you could go to Nebraska oh. to hunt where this guy lives. Yes. So it's kind of beneficial for for us. This is a, it's, We might have to ask some questions that are purely beneficial to only us. I love those podcasts where it's just so you and me can get new <laughs> tips. <laughs> Those are, we need as much help as we can get, so we gotta we gotta ask for it when we can. So, uh, exactly. so leading into this, I guess Nebraska, right? Nebraska. David's from Nebraska. You hunted Nebraska two years ago. If you could sum up what you enjoyed about hunting Nebraska in like one sentence or a couple sentences, how would you how would you do that? Whew. Did you enjoy it? Absolutely beautiful. I mean, the landscape goes on forever. The sunrises and sunsets were spectacular, and uh, you know, um, wild the game was there too. You know, I missed an antelope. Um, saw, a, you know, the the number of whitetail there are low uh, compared to the mule deer's. So uh, the mule deer. So the uh, I saw quite a few uh, mule deer. I saw um, a handful of whitetails, uh, and a couple of the bucks were really quality bucks, but set the the wild game aside it's just in the i was in the sand hills region and it was you can get to the highest point relatively easy of an area and see forever there's something about the plains that they don't they don't get as much hype as you know other other ecosystems like the mountains or on the ocean or whatever it might be but something about being out there in this undula- undulating plains these hills of grass swaying in the wind like i i I love that. And when we're driving, you know, this past couple, you know, few weeks or a month or two ago, when I drove out here, you know, we went through North Dakota and Eastern Montana and every hill you go over, like you said, you can see so far. And right. the thing that always happens to me is whenever I'm in a place like that, I just can't help but sit there and think, what must this have looked like 200 years ago when Lewis right. and Clark came over here and there was a herd of literally a million buffalo over this next hill? Like, what must that have been like? Yeah. It's nostalgic in a way. Oh yeah. 
it, I, I oftentimes when I'm in places like that, I just sit there and wish that I was born 200 years earlier to see that, right. to be out there. Uh, man, it's, it's a pretty special place. Right. Right. And all we got to do is wait for the DeLorean, uh, to come out like the real version of it. And, uh, <laughs> we can, we can hop back 200 years to check it out. Would you do that? Or would you be worried about the butterfly effect? I'd be worried about the butterfly effect. Yeah. I would definitely be worried about the butterfly effect. That, that's a real thing. You know, you, you make what butter, what, what's the thing? If the butterfly flaps swings on one side of the world, it might affect the other side or something like that. Right. Right. There's a, there's actually, this is going, going to go nowhere, but <laughs> <laughs> there's actually a movie or a, a book. It's a science fiction novel. I started reading it, didn't finish it about a guy who goes back in time to, um, I think, I think it was to take a look at dinosaurs, but then when he came back, all he did was step out of the, uh, out of his time capsule or space ship, whatever it was that he was in and put one footprint on the ground and he came back and it was completely different. Like the, the sky wasn't blue. The, um, the air had a different smell to it. The, the people looked different. It was, it was crazy. That's pretty crazy. There was a, there was a movie about that too. Not that specific story, but it was, I think it was called the butterfly effect with, I think Ashton Kutcher, <laughs> yeah, one of the greatest actors of our generation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well, here we are, as usual, talking about something very much not related to what we're supposed to be talking about. But, but really, it would be interesting to go back there as long as we wouldn't change the course of, of humankind. Yeah. yeah, let's be serious a second. It would be really cool to time travel. It, it would be cool. Slightly freaky, but very cool. Just imagine this. If you could time travel, would you go – I would go back to the exact days that, you know, obviously you can't run into yourself. But go back to the exact days that your trail camera may have had that giant buck in front of it or go to a, a period where you missed a deer and you just kind of, you know, give yourself a mulligan so to speak. Well, so take this. Okay. If you could – rewind time back to the day of your shipwreck encounter and you could change it and do it over again. Would you, or would you rather live the life that you did having learned from that experience? I, I, I don't think I could because if I killed that deer, I would probably be some kind of famous hunting celebrity <laughs> and I'd have to deal, you know, like notorious big said, you know, more money, more problems. I'd probably be, <laughs> Yeah, that that's you. You're right. <laughs> that that would happen. No, no, I would. I wouldn't want to go back in time. You? Uh, well, to any encounter of mine or anything like that. No, the one the uh, uh, jawbreaker. Yeah, I'd like to say I I would have liked to write that wrong, but uh, to your point, you know, I think things happen for a reason somehow, right. and uh, I probably learned something from that experience, and uh, I suppose you know you can't go back in time, so you just got to move forward. Right, right. But it sure would be nice to be able to change a few things that uh, if you knew it wasn't going to impact anything else, if you could just write that little wrong, fix that little thing, uh, sure would have been nice in the short term, that's for sure. Right. You know, or at least go back a day or two after you find out the winning numbers of a giant lottery and then you can win a ton of money and then you can buy a ton of land for the, you know, come back to the present. You're only going back maybe a day or two. Nothing really changes and then you win that lottery, and then guess what? What? 
you can hunt anytime, anywhere. That would be nice. Do you ever play that game with yourself where you like imagine, like you look at the lottery that day or whatever it is, and you say, okay, what would I do with $240 million or something like that? Do you ever sit there and (laughs) torture yourself with that idea? (laughs) Uh, I play the game, what would I do with an extra $500? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I guess I'm right there too. (laughs) Well. Well. We. Hey, I tell you what, it's been a while. It has. We're, We're allowed a little bit of digression, right? Right. Right. Now now we can get professional again. Yes. So we're talking to David. We're going to give him a call in a minute. We're going to talk about the Great Plains. We're going to talk about deer hunting. We're going to talk about some venison advice, hopefully, which, you know, we've had Hank Shaw on in the past. He gave, he gave us some great advice. But um, if I were to go and talk to your wife right now, and if I were to say, take Dan's venison cooking now versus one year ago, would she say you're any better? Have you learned anything, or are you still as you were last year? Well, she could not answer that question because my wife is not a fan of deer meat unless it's mixed with, like, sloppy joe sauce or something like that. You know what I mean? Like, she's uh, for, yeah. she's one of those people. Oh, Dan. It's embarrassing. I have to go out in public with her and, you know, people like, hey, remember, you know, in, in these conversations at trade shows or around other hunting buddies, like, yeah, my wife cooks one hell of a beef, you know, a venison stew or something like that. And I'm like, yeah, mine too. <laughs> but she doesn't. So. <laughs> Remi- okay, this is a good reminder for me never to tell you about what we eat then in my household. Right. All venison. Yes. All venison. We actually have venison defrosting right now, and I think we're going to have some uh, some tasty venison pasta tonight. Ooh, nice. Nice. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to that. So do you? what do you do then? Do you just have to make, like, your own venison meal, and then your wife eats something different, or do you – how do you handle that? So there's days when um, I call it uh, first supper, and uh, that's when I cook my own venison, and then I – um, just eat it. Then I have a second supper of what she cooks. So <laughs> that's awesome. It's like a, it's like a, a full course. It's like a meat appetizer, basically. Dude, that is the best idea I've heard in a long time. I need to start having meat appetizers. It also made me think of, I'm, I'm such a nerd that I can quote Lord of the Rings, but I'm going to, <laughs> <laughs> there's a part where the hobbits are walking down the trail and they're talking about being hungry. And someone's like, we already had breakfast. And then the guy's like, what about second breakfast? Elevensies <laughs> and lunchtime, supper, dinner, afternoon snack. And Nerd alert. Yeah, yeah. And with that, we should probably <laughs> we should probably wrap it up. I can't believe this is as successful of a podcast as it actually is. Because there's times where even I go back to listen to it and I'm just like, oh boy. Who puts up with this? It really is remarkable. I uh, <laughs> thank you everyone for for somehow <laughs> for somehow dealing with this week in and week out. Like you said, it's uh, kind of kind of crazy. And uh, I'll offer one more disclaimer that I just was reminded of just now. Um, if totally off topic, but that's what we do. If for some reason the audio on my side sounds a little weird, Dan, I don't know if you can tell or not, but it's kind of echoey over here. It's because I'm recording today and our next episode in the basement of Sick of Gears World Headquarters. Ooh, name drop. Uh, I'm recording in the corporate headquarters of Nine Fingers Studios. So, Well, that's, uh, that sounds pretty fancy, too. 
Yeah, it is. <laughs> I wish I had a better reason for why I'm doing it, but it's because everywhere <laughs> I go has horrible internet. Like the house we have here in Montana, we we are now in Bozeman, Montana for the rest of the month. The internet there is horrible. I tried to rent office spaces in different places in town. I can't find anything that'll let me in. So I had to like beg, borrow, and steal my way into Sitka to uh, to use their basement. So uh, it, it works, and it's got high-speed internet. So I'm a happy man. <laughs> Jackpot. Yeah, exactly. So I appreciate their generosity with their space. And I suppose before we get David on the line, we should take a quick break for a word from Sitka Gear, the sponsor of this podcast and now the home of the temporary recording studio. So let's do that real fast, <laughs> and then we'll give David a call. So as we do every week, we've got a Sitka story, but today's story is a little different as it's just a preview of a larger Sitka story that comes from myself, actually, and Randy Newberg. Now, as many of you know, Randy Newberg is an avid user of Sitka Gear products, and he's the host of the Fresh Tracks TV show on Sportsman Channel and the host of the Hunt Talk Radio podcast. And last week, I actually got to be a guest on that podcast. So today, I wanted to share with you just a little snippet of that conversation, which is just jam-packed with so many interesting stories that took place while using Sitka gear. And then, I encourage you, after listening to this episode, to check out my full conversation with Randy. So, here we are, talking about the allure of one of my more recent addictions, elk hunting. I mean, I've never hunted whitetails where I've smelled that rank kind of... And a lot of times I'll turn to my camera guy and I'll tap my nose. I'm like, you smell that? And they, they nod That's their awesome. head. And, and you know, they, all I of a sudden. That. I'm getting like tingly right now <laughs> thinking about that. <laughs> and, and I think that's another part of the allure of elk hunting is it is so many of your senses. Mm-hmm. It is not just visual. Yeah. It's, it's yep. everything. It truly is everything. Now, on my own elk hunting trips while enjoying that stench of elk, I've come to love the Sitka 90% pants and jacket. It's my go-to system for those hunts. So if you'd like to learn more about Sitka gear, visit SitkaGear.com. And you can listen to that entire conversation with Randy at the Hunt Talk Radio podcast on iTunes or anywhere else that you'd like to find your podcast. So now, let's get back to this podcast and our interview with David Draper. All right, with us now on the line is David Draper. Welcome to the show, Dave. Hey, guys, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited. I'm a big fan of Wired to Hunt, and I'm, I'm pleased that you asked me to join you. Yeah, well, we're, we're pleased that you agreed. <laughs> Sometimes they say no. <laughs> so, well, really, I, I can't believe someone would say no. <laughs> you know, actually, I can. yeah, Dan can. <laughs> you know, I'm actually surprised more people don't say no. I don't think I have gotten a no yet, but I have gotten some, like, just crickets they never respond so uh, yeah yeah that active aggressive no <laughs> exactly exactly so we'll we'll deal with that as, as we do but uh we uh gosh we're already off to a good start today before you get on me and dan were off topic laughing about all sorts of goofy things so we're gonna try to stay on topic and talk hunting like we're supposed to here on that show and i guess with that being said dave you know, for those who aren't familiar with you or maybe haven't seen your work in print, could you just tell our audience a little bit about who you are and what you do in relation to the outdoor world? Uh, yeah, sure. 
So um, I live in western Nebraska near the, the headquarters of Cabela's where I actually worked for 12 years. I was a corporate communication specialist there, a great company to work for. I had a great time. But uh, the cubicle wall started getting a little close and uh, decided to break out on my own and became a freelance writer six and a half years ago. Um, you'll probably see most of my work in Film Stream, where I write the Wild Chef blog, and I also contribute to the magazine. Uh, I write for Peterson's Hunting. Uh, and as a freelancer, I write for anybody that will pay me is, is my line. So <laughs> you'll see my stuff in most, most outdoor magazines covering all sorts of hunting topics, from, from just general hunting tips to, to how to cook wild game. So um, wild game is probably my specialty, but you know, I hunt everything, uh, big-time waterfowl hunter, deer hunter, elk hunter, turkey hunter. So um, I cover, try to cover all the topics that are out there. That's awesome. Now, I gotta, I gotta share with you that Dan over here is pretty jealous of you because he has a certain affinity for that part of the country, Western Nebraska, right, Dan? I do, I do. I went out there two years ago and hunted in the sand hills uh, north of uh, Ogallala. Oh wow, yeah, yeah. So you're not very far from me. That's like a, probably an hour and a half north of Ogallala, and I agree. The sand hills are one of my favorite places in the world, and I traveled and hunted around the world, and it's hard to beat that neck of the woods. So yeah. have you hunted mule deer over there or whitetails or what, what are you hunting in that part of the country? Yeah, I'm, I'm primarily, or I, I should say I, I hunt lots of, but I love hunting mule deer. Um, and that's kind of what we have in our neck of the woods. And uh, I'm, I'm a fan of uh, family farmer, so that's kind of what we have where I live as well. Whitetails are kind of on the river bottoms around here, though we do get some open country whitetails too, which I, I enjoy hunting them as well. But uh, mule deer mostly, um, but it's funny because the, where I live, it's really you know it's half and half. There's there's both and there's both animals there, so it's, I kind of and and the top the the tags are usually good for a buck of either sex or either uh, species, depending uh, if you're not in a mule deer conservation area. So, so what do you think is which is the harder deer to hunt? And now, since you're in a spot that has both mule deer or whitetail, which is the trickier one? Oh, wow, that's a, that's a tough question. I I like to defend my mule deer because everyone thinks you know mule deer big bucks are dumb and they'll stop and look back and all these reasons. But I don't know. That's a tough question, Mark. Uh, I love hunting mule deer, but whitetails are smart and man, are they tough to hunt. So I I'm going to give the nod to whitetails, though it hurts me a little bit to do so. <laughs> Well, it made us feel better, so thank you. <laughs> no problem. But, you know, I, I just I really think, depending on where you're at, but uh, open country whitetail is so much different than a whitetail where in your guys' neck of the woods, or, or you hunt them differently anyway. It's, it's, it's just, it's just, when I, whenever I have to go sit in a tree somewhere, it's a strange, strange thing for me. So, so tell us about open country whitetail hunting then, you know, because that's not something I've done a whole lot of, although this year I'm going to. Um, you know, what, what does make it so different? Uh, you know, it depends on how you hunt them. I mean, you can hunt them. You can obviously put a blind up or, or find the trees, uh, though there aren't many of them in my neck of the woods to hunt. But really, it's a spot and stock affair a lot of time or an intercept affair and just kind of figure out what they're keying on. Obviously, they're still really big on agricultural fields if they're in the area and water sources, two very big things out here um, in open country. But, but really, it's just surprising where you find whitetails where you wouldn't think so. I mean, you can look like there's no cover for miles and miles around and you and you step on a tall piece of grass and a big buck will come busting out of there it's, it's just a strange strange thing <laughs> yeah I can, I can imagine i'm slowly starting to figure that out like you know as you know i'm out here in montana right now and i'm starting to scout for a trip that i'm gonna be taking in september to hunt here and already i'm looking around like where am i going to hunt these deer like where I, there's nowhere i'm putting up a tree stand that's for sure in some of these spots at least so how do you go about you know when you're starting a hunt like that how do you start that process and you're scouting i mean are you just 
standing somewhere and watching for a while or what's your what's your kind of process? Yeah, that that's one of the one of the benefits of open country hunting is is that you can you can generally see deer, although they're sneakier than you think and they use the contours of the land, but you have such open country to stand that a good pair of binoculars or a spotting scope and a night spin in the uh, behind the uh, windshield of your truck is, is really the best way to go about it, you know. Uh, where I live, there's section roads, so about every mile there's a dirt road. Um, so you just do a lot of driving and just look for them. And, you know, look in spots where there's some CRP cover, where there's tall grass or an abandoned farmstead or someplace where there's a little bit of cover. Obviously, whitetails are still very cover relevant or they use cover a lot so so anywhere you can find some cover in that seemingly open country you're probably going to find a deer i mean the, the biggest deer i've ever seen in my life on the hoof um i kicked up while i was hunting pheasants on a little tiny corner of crp grass in the middle of nowhere in southeast nebraska i mean or south uh, central nebraska it was it's really just surprising i had a shotgun in my hand and i was walking a tiny spot of grass hoping to kick up a rooster and i kicked up a, a giant buck wow it is funny sometimes the stuff they choose to hole up in. It's it's surprising. Yeah, and it's surprising that a deer uh, can hide in that. I mean, I mean that grass I was walking. I guess it was waist high, so a deer can lay down in it and disappear. But I mean, I almost stepped on him behind before he even got up, and I'm sure he knew I was there before then. But he just he just wanted to hold tight until I have obviously had to kick him out of his bed practically. Now, for some of these whitetails, when you when you are whitetail hunting, are you? trying spotting stalks on the whitetails too or is that just the muleys that you try stalking on you know if the cover's right or the terrain's right if they're in some pretty broken country i'll try it <laughs> i'm not successful very often if at all um it, for me it becomes more of an and even for muleys it becomes more of an intercept affair um, if you can figure out their pattern or if there's spots like if there's some big open country and you see a deer maybe in some tall grass bedded and you see an abandoned farmstead you know far away away they they relate to those landmarks like a human would and so if you can figure out where they're going to go or if there's a water tank somewhere that you know of you can get between them and, and hopefully they walk by i mean it's, it's the same it's a, it's a similar thing to sit in the tree stand it's just you don't have a tree to tree to sit in you have to get hunkered in the ground or, or put up a ground line and hopefully get used to it in time do you got do you use any uh trail cameras uh like say pre-season or during the season to try to maybe in a funnel or a pinch point to i guess look for deer that you want to shoot yeah, yeah, definitely. If you hunt in the same land a lot, you kind of figure out the patterns. And like you said, there's pinch points, there's funnels, there's a tule or a draw, or even just a real low point that they'll use irrigation ditch. You'll find some crossing points there. You know, they're creatures of habit. They'll use the same crossing point. And yeah, trail cam is great for that. I also, you know, when, when I start hunting pheasants in late October, I'll start seeing some rubs by then. And, and so I'll put a trail cam up. It, it could be a little, a little short stretch of trees, and there'll be one tree in there that's trashed. I'll try to put a trail cam up there just to see what's there. Um, it might not be able to hunt it, but it's always good to know when there's deer in the area and what kind of deer they are. Speaking speaking of the what you know what quality of deer there are, you know I feel like a lot of the states near where you're at, like Iowa or Kansas, right? They get a lot of hype for their great big whitetails, but Nebraska's not too bad either, is it? Uh, there's no deer in Nebraska. So move <laughs> along, please. <laughs> I was afraid you'd say that. that. That's, my, that's my standard line when people ask me about deer hunting in Nebraska. <laughs> but, no, you know, it, it's funny. It, right now, today, I'm writing a, a story, Top 10 Whitetail States, for Bowhunting World magazine. And uh, as much as it pains me to, to do it, I'm going to rank Nebraska pretty high. It's, it is 
I don't think it's a sleeper state anymore. People are figuring it out, and they know there's good whitetails here. But it, it can be a great state. I mean, it doesn't have the, the cachet of Iowa or Kansas or Missouri, but it can be a really good state. The, the problem with whitetail hunting in Nebraska is whitetail are primarily found on private land. There's not a pub, lot of public land percentage-wise in Nebraska, and so it's definitely a pay-to-play deal um, getting on land or if you're lucky enough to get on some land that you can knock on a door on. But it, it, it is tough. That's the hardest part in Nebraska. So, especially when it comes to whitetails. Yeah. So, so you kind of intrigued me there with this article you're working on. Can you share with us uh, some of the other states that are in your top ten? Um, yeah, I probably can. And, it, and it's, it's, it's that's such a hard thing. When somebody when, I, when the editor called me said I want you to write the top ten whitetail states, that is a hard thing to do because who do you leave out and who do you put in? Yeah. Um, so I'll give you a couple I put in that maybe you might not think, and maybe you will think. Um, I, I put in Ohio. I, and Ohio has been a great state for whitetails, but it's obviously been on the downtrend in the past few years, but I think it has great potential. So it actually cracked the top ten. Uh, that's on there. Wisconsin, another one that's been tough lately, but I, I think I'm going to include it as well because it still has potential. I mean, I, they kill about 300-some thousand deer a year, so there's oh, always yeah. potential for a good deer there. Um, and then, and then all of your major players, Kansas, Iowa, Kentucky is going to be in there. Um, I think there's some southeast states that maybe get overlooked. Mississippi is a great state, but, man, Georgia and Arkansas have some really good numbers as well if you look at the numbers hard. So, you know, their, their age class of bucks in the southeast is creeping up there. And, and yeah, they're a smaller body deer, but I, I think there's some great potential there. So that's, that's kind of some I'm looking at. I'm still really narrowed down. It's so hard when you write that list to write 10 and then say I'm done because there's always a great state that you're going to leave out oh yeah i i actually did an article like that for north american whitetail like three years ago and um but it was the top 20 like i think it did one yeah. was the top 20 diy states and then one was just like the top 20 trophy buck states or something like that and you know to your point yeah. it's really tough because a lot of that stuff's subjective right you're just kind of comparing apples to oranges oh. or you know when you do yeah. try to get into the details you know i tried to pull all sorts of you know Boone and Crockett and Pope and Young rankings, and I looked at state data, and I looked at public land, and I looked at average lease rates, and all this different stuff. And you can just get so yeah. bogged down in it. And no matter what you do, someone's going to complain. I knew I got all sorts of oh, comments yeah. like, "You're an idiot. Why'd you put this one over that oh. one?" Yeah, that's, I used. Well, there's a couple lines I used in here. I said, uh, you know, on every list there needs to be an outlier. If for no other reason, you get Hunter something to argue about. And that's my <laughs> Ohio opener. And then my Wisconsin opener is. is fact is, any discussion about Wisconsin's deer herd is going to start an argument. Yes. <laughs> that sounds like... So, and so it, yeah, it, it is hard. And like you said, if you can look at numbers. I've been looking at numbers for the past week until my eyes bleed, just trying to figure out where to put what state. And yeah. then you want a couple sleeper states, too. So let me ask you guys a question. What what do you think are the sleeper states for whitetails? Whitetails are states that maybe people don't think about. All right. Um, let me see. Oh, or, or don't you want to tell me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those are my secrets. Um, you know, yeah, that's why you got to keep it a sleeper. Yeah, I think you know. For me, when I was going about going through that list, the states that kind of stuck out to me as, as sleepers a little bit were actually, to your point, you mentioned a few of those southeastern states really have good age structures because um, they've been mm-hmm. practicing some form of quality deer management or age management a little bit longer than some places. So there's decent exactly. age structure, and then I think the west. States like as you start getting yeah. to like the Dakotas or Montana, Wyoming, from what I see and hear, yeah. I mean there's uh, there's a lot of quality opportunities out there. So the, for me, that's kind of what I was thinking. Yeah. How about you, Dan? Kind of similar thoughts? Yeah, I would I would say Dakotas uh, as yeah. uh, sleeper states. Just for, and that's only from what guys are telling me. 
uh, you know, you know, chit-chatting on social media and getting emails from guys. And even, I hate to say it, but I probably would agree with you in, uh, in Nebraska as well. Some of the, uh, what some of the guys are, are telling me and sharing stories with me. Now the numbers aren't there, but the, the quality, there's quality there. Yeah, that's the thing about those. And I agree. I think the Western states are probably the, I don't know if it's a secret, but I think those are sleepers, Montana for sure, Wyoming for sure, and and the Dakotas. You know, the Dakotas kind of got hammered with some CWD a couple years ago. But that's the thing about them. People look at them and they go, well, they don't kill that many whitetails. Well, yeah, they don't. But if you look at the whitetails some guys are killing, whew, there's some studs coming out of there. And the other thing to consider is that in those states, yeah, they're not killing that many deer, but that's because there's not that many hunters, you know, compared to yeah. – how many people, oh, yeah. you know, there's 900,000 hunters in Michigan. Well, of course we're going to kill 400,000 deer. Well, when you look at there's exactly. only like 25,000 hunters or whatever it is in North Dakota. <laughs> well, yeah, we're going to have different numbers. Yeah, exactly. And I think people don't kind of look at the numbers as completely as they should. They just look at one number and go, oh, I don't kill that many deer. Well, okay, but percentage-wise, maybe that maybe the percentages are there. So yeah. Now, I actually, uh, this is no joke, I actually had a conversation today with – uh, a, a wildlife biologist in Nebraska um, talking about the area that uh, uh, me and Mark might hunt uh, this year. And uh, he was he was telling me that as far as mule deer are concerned, uh, they are they had an awesome two years in a row now of fawn recruitment. And um, the average age, he said, of mule deer buck was um, three years old. And then he and he didn't really say anything about uh, buck doe ratios, but uh, the numbers are, are definitely going up for mule deer and uh, whitetail as well. So he didn't really tell me anything about uh, the the actual um, age class of harvested whitetails, but uh, it's on the up and up. So that can help support some of that thought as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would, I would agree with them. I mean, I wouldn't have any point to argue with them. I, I really think there's some really good mule deer hunting to be had here in the next years. And I think, you know, it's, it's funny. We had uh, that bad CWD in what, 2012 with everyone, everyone else had it. That you, drought you mean, year. you mean EHD? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Sorry, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, not thinking right. It's too late in the afternoon. But yeah, ESC in 2012, like most states had, and and it was it was funny. The deer are, are on the. We had a, a herd that was too big already, I think, and I think so. I think that was probably not a bad thing. I mean, it's a bad thing, obviously, but it did need some herd reduction. But it's amazing the big bucks that have been killed. Last year, I saw more big deer killed, white-tailed mule deer, than I've seen in a long time. Not as many people were killing bucks, but the guys that killed bucks killed really, really good bucks here in Nebraska. And I don't know what to attribute that to, other than the fact those are deer that survived that. that. And then there was less hunter, um, I don't want to say activity the next couple of years, but I think license sales were probably down a bit because people were scared off by the by the EHD and, and the deer numbers. So, man, it was a, it was a great year last year. I hope that continues in 2016. Well, you know, I, I, it's funny you mention that because that was kind of one of my like hypotheses after the big EHD outbreak in 2012 was that you know, okay, three years from now or four years from now, we're going to see some great deer because the deer that survived now are living in a landscape with much less competition for food. So. You know, they had great access to nutrition now compared to maybe when they had, you know, four bucks around them. Now they only had one other buck or one other deer around them. So there's a greater access to food. Um, you know, 
mm-hmm. some of those deer, the ones that did survive, were probably, well, I don't know if this is true or not, but maybe they are in some way slightly predispositioned to be healthier deer because they're able to make it through that. So um, genetics might be you know improved as those deer breed. I don't know. I think, like you said, these this next year or two and last year, I think hopefully are going to be fruitful years, um, the silver lining to the cloud that was the 2012 <laughs> HD. Yeah, and I, and I don't wonder if maybe with reduced... Uh, herd numbers with equals reduced doe numbers, maybe those bigger bucks were moving more, leading to more hunter encounters. Um, yeah. You know, they're not, they didn't, they had to move farther to find those because the does were, I mean, it was really, the numbers are really hammered out here. And so maybe that's what it was too. Those, those bucks have to go farther to find a doe and there's a better chance of intercepting a hunter intercepting them. That's a so great that's point. Just, I just threw that. I just made, I just made that up just now while we were talking, but it hit, it dawned on me. <laughs> you, you, well, you should, you should write an article about it and become part <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I think I'll include that in the article I work. <laughs> That's but awesome. Thank you guys for making my job easier. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the least we could do. But it really is such a good point, and it's um, you know, it's something that is so commonly misunderstood I think is that so many people think the more does I have the better my hunting is going to be during the rut because you think if I got tons of does there'll be tons of bucks coming in but to your point lots of times having a little bit lower doe population will be better because those bucks have to move around more there's you know there's more competition for fewer does so they have to be more active they have to be searching more they have to be a little bit more aggressive with other bucks that kind of makes for the more interesting and exciting hunt yeah, I think you're 100% right on that. We we get hung up on thinking high, higher deer numbers are better, and they, that might not actually be true. So, yeah. So so speaking of that, of you know the better hunt or where the the different types of situations, different areas. Given you know what you're doing now, I imagine that you've got to deer hunt a lot of different places. Where's your favorite place to deer hunt? It'll always be at home. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, yeah, I, I had access to some really good uh, breaks just uh, just south of the North Platte River here near me that was just uh, some phenomenal hunting. And just the type of hunting I like, I would park my truck at, at the gate and walk all day long and sit and glass, and it was just fun. Um, but, you know, to your point, yeah, I've been to Illinois several times, and it's great. I've never killed a deer there. I should say I did kill one deer there, but I've never killed a really great deer there like you're supposed to. So the, some of those states get overhyped and it's, I, I, I'm so excited about the hunt and then I go and I'm like, ah, oh, man, that's, you got to remember a lot of it's just hype. But Illinois is a great state. You know, Kansas is a great state. Um, I've hunted Missouri several times. Uh, I love South Dakota because it's kind of like I'm hunting at home. Um, it's similar territory. I hunted the Pine Ridge Reservation last year and, and killed the, killed probably my best buck. Um, and it's it's it was similar hunting to what I do, where you where you're hunting that open country, and that's kind of what I love. So, can you tell us about that hunt, that good buck you took last year uh, on the Pine Ridge? Yeah, yeah, and it, uh, I can tell you about it. I should I don't know if I'm gonna tell you the true story because I missed two other bucks before. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-oh. It was uh, it was a that was a rifle hunt. I was with my friend Neil Davies from Hornady and uh, one of his buddies, Travis Bradford, uh, from the Pine Ridge Reservation up there, and we were hunting. And uh, man, I don't know. I had the yips or something, you know. Golfers get the yips. It was a rifle hunt, but uh, man, I just I don't know what I did on those other two bucks. But then I made a spectacular shot on the 
on the buck I killed. Uh, late in the day, um, I, I had three days to hunt, but in reality, my girlfriend's birthday was the next day, so I kind of had one day to hunt. <laughs> I, I did, she, she was fine with me not being home for her birthday, she said, but you still want to be there. So um, yeah, That was a trick. Two, two, <laughs> yes, exactly. I know, and I know. And I, it's, it's a trap, and I, I think I want it because I actually killed the buck. Late in the day, I mean, there wasn't much sunlight left at all. We were, we were cruising along a trail road on top of a ridge, and spotted a buck, oh, actually spotted a doe first, but she was acting funny, so we thought there was a buck there, and uh, kind of got set up, and sure enough, he came out of this brush pile. Um, uh, I missed him with the first shot, but he was so intent on that doe that I hit him, what I what turned out to be a perfect shot on the second shot. I hit him, and he ran. I wasn't real sure that I hit him or hit him good, and so somehow on the run, I hit him with a second perfect shot, probably the best shot I've ever made in my life on the third shot and, and killed him. So, <laughs> I mean, he was dead after that. We turned to find out the first shot punctured his lungs. second shot was just not too far off that. So, <laughs> wow. so but yeah, and just I've got to put the tape to him, but he's just a nice buck, beautiful buck. I was with a good friend and, and, uh, and a new good friend, Travis Braidbird, the Pine Ridge Restoration. He was such a nice guy, just just an enjoyable hunt. And for me, that's a lot of it. You know, I don't I don't tape most of my animals. I've killed three beautiful elk in my life. I've never put a tape on any of them. It's experience for me. It's it's that's more of it than the inches to me. I mean, it's just just my I don't I don't mind the guy. And I, I kind of wish I had my elk tape because people ask me about it, and I'm like, oh, I don't know, I really know. <laughs> because it'd be nice to have that information, but. But it's just that it was just a really fun hunt with Neil and Travis, and, and just in hunting the way I enjoy to hunt. You know, I, I, I have a hard, I'm, just the way I was raised. I think I have a hard time sitting in the tree waiting for a deer to come by. I do it every year. I hunt tree stands here in Nebraska too for whitetails um, down by Paxton, but I, it's not the funnest way to hunt for me. It definitely is an acquired taste. I think. I think a lot of I hear from a lot of Western guys who who kind of to your point, they have a hard time with it or they struggle with it. Um, but I guess if you're raised on it, it's all you know. There's a certain something special about sitting there, and the 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 necessity of learning patience has taught us an important virtue. I think <laughs> maybe. I think, and it's funny as I've gotten older, I like it a lot more. I I, I used to just hate it. I, I do it just kind of out of necessity, you know. You know, if I wanted to kill some does for the freezer, I'd do it, but. I didn't like it, but now that I'm getting older, I enjoy it a lot more. It's you see so much wildlife when you're sitting in a tree. You know, it's not just about a deer walking by. You'll see coyotes come by and bobcats and the and the birds, the wildlife. It's it's really a, a cool way to hunt. It's just hard for me to slow down and take it all in. Yeah, it's kind of funny you mentioned that. I was just recently thinking about this. You know, there's some certain types of hobbies or activities that completely engage you 100% so much that you can't think about anything else at all while you're doing it. You know, I was thinking in this case, it was fly fishing. I was, you know, thinking about this past summer, but oh, I a lot yeah. of fly fishing and you could be there four hours. And because you need, at least when I'm fly fishing, I'm thinking about where I'm going to put the cast. I'm thinking about how I'm going to present it. I'm mending the line. I'm thinking, I mean, the entire time I'm engaged four hours pass and I'm like, holy smokes, where'd the time go? So there's something really cool mm-hmm. about an activity like that, which I kind of would compared to like western hunting where you're stalking elk or mule deer or something like that you're engaged the entire time and there's something really cool about that but then there's also something really cool about an activity like deer hunting from a tree stand where you're forced to sit and wait and think and pay attention to all these little details and things that you'd pass by if you were hiking through but when you have time there just to sit and let things come to you you have a whole different set of experiences and opportunity to to reflect and stuff so there's something really cool about both of those two different things that I don't know. I kind of like both in their own unique way. 
yeah, I have to agree. I, I, I think I've learned more about deer hunting when I'm in a tree stand than when I'm spot and stalking because you have that time to sit and think and, and see deer like activity. Like maybe you don't have to stand quite in the right spot, but you see a lot of deer and you, you have to figure out in your head, okay, why are they using that spot? And how can I get my tree stand there by tomorrow morning and, and stuff like that? I mean, I have learned way more about deer hunting in a stand than I have uh, sitting on a ridge top trying to figure out, you know, why there are no white tails within my, you know, five miles I could see in that direction. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I think we've all probably been in some kind of situation like that, whether it be on a hill or sitting in the tree looking 30 yards and wondering how come I haven't seen anything. Yeah, yeah. We can all relate to that. Exactly. I got a I got a strategy question for you. And okay. the reason I ask is because it like I said, it's purely for for me because there's a chance that we're go we're going out uh in uh out to Nebraska to hunt this uh this fall. In in, mm-hmm. in regards to, you know, scouting, let's say you got like 4 or 5 days to to hunt and uh, maybe even less amount of time. Are how how much time is spent in the truck scouting as opposed to scouting outside of the truck, like climbing to a higher, higher vantage point or, or going in a little deeper? Um, that kind of depends on the terrain. If you're in the sandhills, I'd say there's a little bit of time spent in the truck. Um, but you're not going to have a lot of opportunity to drive into some of that territory or you're not going to want to, because you're going to be in prime deer country everywhere you drive. But the beauty is a lot of the time in those ranches that you're hunting, those animals are more used to trucks than they are on guys on feet. So if they see a truck, they're like, oh, that's the rancher. I see that truck all the time, or I see a truck all the time. If it's a human on a foot, they don't see human on foot on, on their feet very often. And so when they see one, they freak out. So that you kind of have to balance that a little bit with, with the terrain you're hunting. Um, so I don't know if I could give you a percentage. You just kind of have to, to play your odds a little bit. But, but definitely, you know, it's, it's about especially the sand hills, getting in the, high, the highest hill you can find and glassing and then work your way to the next hill. And because, because those, that's the funny part about those sand hills is they're so choppy in places where you could be within a half a mile of the deer. You can see for three miles, but you could be within a half mile of the deer and never know he's there just because of the land's so choppy. And then you go to the next hill and you bust him out. So um, you got to be really careful. I, I'd almost say that a, a vehicle is typically preferred if you can get in there, if there's a, if there's a ranch road you can drive on and that sort of stuff. It's just because the animals are used to that. Now, what about um, like your your food to bedding, and, and with there not being a lot of trees, you know, obviously there's less trees in in Nebraska, um, and in the county that the county that I hunt, there are there are no there's no running water, there's no, uh, oh, no creeks. So, yep. what kind of what kind of I guess terrain features should one be looking for, and this doesn't necessarily have to be in reference to just Nebraska, but in all open land style of hunts, what kind of terrain features should we be looking for, whether it's for, you know, for movement or for bedding? Yeah. So that's a, that's a great question. And the the hills are going to be choppy. Like I said, one thing I would key on big time, especially if you don't have any running water, is stock tanks. If, if there's going to be there's going to be some sort of water, those those animals have to water. I mean, they do get a lot of water from dew, but out here there's not a lot of dew in the mornings. It's dry country. It's arid. We get less than 20 inches of rain a year. Where you're hunting, they probably get 16 to 
10 inches of rain a year if it's where I think it, or if I were imagining it, it's not far from me and that's about what we get. So there, there's not a lot of moisture to be had. So I would find if you can get on Google Maps or if the rancher or the farmer or uh, even on public land, because a lot of that land is, is turned out for grazing. So there's there's uh, windmills on it. I would key in on those huge. Those are your spots is where every every deer in the neighborhood is going to go to that spot. Even if they're not thirsty, the bucks are going to go there to see if a doe's been there. It's, it's almost like a signpost, like a scraper or a rub would be. So that's what I would key in on, um, and then just try to find travel corridors, um, how they're using it. They're, gonna, they're not going to walk over the top of the highest hill. They're going to cut across it. They're going to use saddles. It's kind of like mountain hunting, you know, use those contours to, to stay hidden as they move. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, no problem. I, I, I hope that uh, works for you. So, Gosh, I hope yeah. so too. Dan, you need some redemption <laughs> from last time, right? Right. I, I missed an antelope last year. And, you know, my first my first ever, not last year, it was two years ago. But, uh, you know, you go out there, and I'm, I'm Iowan, right? So I'm a tree yep. stand hunter. Uh, yep. So you go out there, and you're all I knew was don't skyline yourself and, yep. move, you know, glass, then move, glass, then move. But yep. <laughs> still, like you said, I was bumping – I was bumping deer out of certain areas or um, I would be walking to a point where I didn't think I was skylined, but I, I kept having to remember there's no trees to block m block me. So yeah. I was skylined from some angle, maybe not the angle that I thought I was. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they, and they can, like I said, they, they don't see humans very often outside their vehicles. So when they see someone on foot, then they freak out and they'll be in the next county quick. Antelope are the same way. So, and one thing about, one thing I guess I'll, I'll, I'll touch on, and I don't know how or why you, why you missed, but um, distances are weird out here. People that, people that hunt heavy cover, heavy timber, get a little freaked out about distance when they're out here. Everything is farther than you think. Um, or sometimes, I mean, it's just, it's an optical illusion. I mean, I, I've missed uh, deer or antelope with my bow that I thought were half as close as they were um, if I didn't have time to range them. So I'll say if you, if you come back out next year to hunt antelope, bring a decoy because there's nothing better than decoy and antelope. Right. Now, have I'm you... going to buy one. <laughs> have you ever tried the decoy helmet? <laughs> have you seen that? <laughs> I have not. I have not tried the decoy helmet. I've seen it, and I, I, I don't know that I'd use it or not. I'll tell you a quick story about my girlfriend's first antelope. She killed one last October with her muzzleloader, September with her muzzleloader, um, and and we can use uh, the muzzleloader season in Nebraska for antelope falls right in the peak of the antelope rut. So decoying is. A phenomenal. I don't use it on land that I don't know you went on. Obviously, with a with a firearm, it's a muzzleloader, but still, you don't want guys shooting at you. But uh, we we end of the day, we saw a buck cruising along the hillside, and we skirted around to get to him in front of him, and he moved a little faster than we thought. And we peeked our head up, and we didn't have an antelope hat on. We just peeked our head up, and he saw us, and he came to 14 yards on a dead sprint. I tried to put the decoy up. It was useless. I threw it behind me and ducked, and basically my girlfriend killed him when he, he kind of skirted us with my 14 yards. He freaked out about as bad as we did, and she killed him at 50 yards. Wow. So, um, so I don't think you need the decoy helmet. If you, as long as they don't see your whole body, antelope are so curious that they'll come to it. I mean, especially in the rut, especially if they have does and there's been bucks challenging them, little bucks challenging them. Man, it's, there's nothing more exciting. It's, it's one of my favorite things to do. 
Wow. Well, I'll tell you what, whether we uh, do mule deer hunting or antelope hunting or whatever we do, if we get out there, Dan, I'm making you wear a decoy helmet and you're going to run around on all fours and I'm going to see if we can get a deer to come running up to you. How about that? Hey, I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it. Uh, it's funny. I remember reading that. I think it was even a Chuck Adams article about hunting a sick blacktail on Kodiak, and they were wearing uh, some sort of deer deer hats on there because the deer there get really curious. My problem with that is there's grizzlies on Kodiak. Yeah. You don't want to decoy that type of, that type of critter. No. Sure. No. Oh man, yeah, that's uh, that would make for quite an experience, that's for sure. So, so Dave, I want to pivot really quick here before we have to let you go because I want to make sure okay. we talk about wild game cooking. Like you mentioned, you contribute to the Wild Chef blog, right, on the Field and Stream website, and you've done a lot of that kind of writing. So, I want to make sure we pick your brain a little bit about that. Um, okay. So, I guess first, what is your favorite way to cook venison like your go-to the best way if you had to pick one? Oh, that's a tough one that's really hard to say i'm gonna i'm gonna tell you and, and it's there's a it's there's a bandwagon now but i i was doing it before it was cool I'm a, i was a hipster i was doing it before it was cool <laughs> shanks on shanks on any deer elk antelope anything are the best cut I'd almost put them over a backstrap any day of the week and people will rate me over the coals for it. But the shanks, slow cooked with uh, like some uh, chipotles and some Mexican spices. I'm a huge Southwestern flavors guy. I love Tex-Mex. I love Southwestern food, green chilies. So I'm going to say that and then wrap it in a tortilla, just like a, like almost like make a green chili and then smother burritos with it or just uh, some shredded up like that. That's my favorite. I, I, I don't know. It's not fancy. It's, Kind of peasant food, but man, do I love just some shredded shanks with some green chili. It's it's my favorite, bar none. Now a lot of guys they don't even save their shanks though, right? Uh, how do you? Uh, no, they they throw them out. It drives me crazy. Right. So so for those guys, and I have to admit, I have done that on occasion, and I shouldn't. Um, I, but I, I'm going to tell you, I used to do it. I did it for years until I figured out if you just slow cook them, they're delicious. So how how do you go about doing that? A how should you be like? butchering it and to save it in the right way to freeze it up in the right way and then how do you go about actually you know using it okay so you know uh, we all know what a shank is so just cut off that foreleg where the cut off the foreleg and then you'll have the shank will be the next cut i take a sawzall um and cut it off above the knuckle on each end so i have a bone on a white tail probably trying to visualize it in my head six to seven inch bone that's got some meat wrapped around it and it looks like it's full of tendons and silver skin and it is but that's going to cook away on a on a on a deer-sized animal either whether it be a, a white tail or an antelope um or probably even a mule deer i would actually leave them whole so it's a whole shank um, a lot of guys will cut them into about two inch sections with a sawzall or a bone saw um and then uh, you know just wrap it and freeze it that way or if you're going to cook it right away you, you want to braise it i mean there's two Techniques you need to know as a wild game cook, hot and fast on the grill or in a hot cast iron skillet for steaks, you know, you don't want to overcook that or slow and low. And that's braising. It's kind of the same thing you're doing in a crock pot. You're, you're cooking in a 250 to 275 degree oven in a covered pot with a little bit of moisture. And that, that silver skin and those tendons just melt away. And there's, and actually it makes it better because that melts into like almost just like a, a gelatinous thicker sauce. It makes it even better. So, so that's what you do with your shanks. You know, a lot of guys will cut them off and grind it for jerky. That's fine too. You got to have a good grinder to cut through all that silver skin though. And if you're going to try to do it with a knife, it's, it's a waste of time. It's better just to let that stuff cook away and, and, and use that as a flavor. 
Yeah, early, I, I uh, kind of embarrassingly will admit that, I don't know, like 10 years ago or a long time ago when I was trying to deal with one of my own deer by myself for the first time, I remember getting to the <laughs> shank and I was like, you know, I'm just going to try to like cut out each tiny little sliver that I can without silver skin. So I was in there trying to pull out little tiny pieces between tendons. It was a disaster. So um, I'm the same way. I'm a, I'm a meat miser. I, I really, I mean, I, I took an, I, I butchered Tessa's antelope last year. And then I took an antelope I killed in Wyoming a couple days later to a butcher, and I got half as much meat from the butcher. And that's not to, to say all butchers are bad, but, you know, they're doing things quickly. They're not going to take time, man. It takes me so long to butcher my own animals. I do it all myself because I want every last ounce of meat on there. And I got tired of, A, they're spending a ton of time on those shanks just, and then not getting any meat for it because you cut away one tendon, and then there's another one there, another piece of silver skin. Or or throw them away. I just because like man, this is good meat. I can't be I can't be wasting it. What do I need to do with it? So I you know educated myself and and learned that hey, you just got to cook them right. Yeah. So so speaking of you know breaking your animal down and butchering it and all that kind of stuff, given you know all the different articles you've done on this and the different people I imagine you've talked to, is there any uh, particular common mistakes that you hear that most hunters are making when it comes to that processing part of the process? Um, I, I don't know if there's common mistakes. There's so many different ways to do it. My biggest thing was, is to say just take your time. I mean, I think a lot of guys, they do it themselves, and they, they like the idea of doing it themselves, but they hate the drudgery. So once they start doing it, they, they just go, oh, i got to get this done. i got you know footballs on or something's going on, or i got to watch my kids talking. i got to get this done. And they take way too much time. Or, I mean, they, 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 they do it too quickly. They don't take enough time. So that's my biggest suggestion just set aside a day to, to butcher and do it right yeah i also recommend several cold beers and maybe a podcast to listen to while you're doing it <laughs> yeah yeah since i discovered podcasting i would agree with that one but the cold beers have been in equation for a long time not too many though because you have sharp knives that are involved <laughs> yes. so be careful yes <laughs> be responsible dan i'm with dan on that responsible <laughs> So, so what about grilling venison? You did a, a feature this summer. I'm pretty sure I saw it was you uh, for Field and Stream, right? That was all about different wild game grilling ideas. Um, do yeah, you have any, yeah. Do you have yeah any, I did a whole grilling package one. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Some some very good looking stuff. Is there anything from that or otherwise that you can share us when it comes to grilling venison? Uh, you know, I th- I think it, it, you, what I what I always say is manage your cuts to the type of cooking you're going to do. So grilling, you're going to want something that's that's thinner and you want to cook it hot and fast. Um, so you want your grill super hot. And you want to sear it so that outside gets that crunchy kind of deliciousness. But you've got to be careful, especially on venison, because once you overcook venison, it turns into disgusting leather that doesn't taste like very good. It tastes like iron and shoe leather. So you still need it medium rare no matter what you're cooking. Um, so you want to do hot and fast and manage your fire that way. You know, and, and you hear it all the time. I talk about grilling, but a two-zone fire is all I use. I always, no matter if I'm using my gas grill or my charcoal grill, I always have a cold side. So if something does flare up or something's getting too hot and the other cut's not done yet, I can move it over there. That's that's my biggest suggestion for grilling. It's you know I, I grew up with my dad grilling, and you know a flare up was just something you poured beer on. You know, it's just you know you had the whole grill and it turned into a big big 
pile of flames. But once you learn about, you know, two-zone or even three-zone grilling where you have a hot, a warm, and a cool side, you know, manage your meat that way. Just move it around to where it needs to be. But, you know, make sure you get that outside seared. Um, you know, people will say you sear the outside of a steak to hold the juices in. That's not really true. I don't think you'll ever hold the juices into anything unless you vacuum seal it. But, uh, but you want that kind of crispy, crunchy outside that has all that unctuous flavor on it. And then, you know, you still have your moist inside that, that's just a little bit bloody, at least it is for me. <laughs> yeah. So you talked about this hot and fast versus slow and low. You know, mm-hmm. is there are which cuts are right for either or? Because I feel like some people. I mean, I I think yeah. I know which, but uh, I don't know. Is there is there some rules that we should follow? Like you always do X with Y. My 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 hard and fast rule is: the farther you get away from the header hooves of any animal, the more tender the meat. Think about your most tender cut. It's the tender line. It's far away from the head and the hooves. A back straps come next. It's far away. The closer you get, the more those muscles move. And what makes what makes meat tough or what makes a cut tough is how much it moves, how much the animal uses it. The neck, it uses its neck it tough. So the neck's tough meat. It's legs. It's, you know, that's where your front shoulders, that's some tougher meat because they use those a lot. Your shank's close to the hoof, that's your toughest meat. That's toughest meat on any animal. So that's my hard and fast rule. The, the farther it is away from the, the hooves or the head, the more tender the cut. And then the more tender the cut, that's the stuff you usually want to cook hot and fast uh, because you don't want it. You don't need to cook that stuff. It, 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 it'll cook quickly. You don't overcook it, and it's good. If it's tough, you're going to want to cook it longer at a lower temperature to break those fibers down um, so it's not as tough, and you can actually chew it. That's that's a good way to remember it. I like the, uh, the hooves-to-head reference points. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> That's right. So, you know, you're going to be grilling or you're going to be cooking hot and fast. Your back straps, your tenderloins. There are some cuts, the sirloin, um, that are, you know, from the hind end that are better. Some of those cuts are a little tougher. You kind of learn that as you butcher your deer. <clears throat> there's there's the, uh, oh, the sirloin inside the, the hind quarter that's delicious. Uh, there's a couple steaks you can cut off that front shoulder that you can cook hot and fast. They're going to be a little tougher, but I don't mind my meat. I, I actually, and this is another thing people rate me really close on, I'm not the biggest tenderloin fan. Um, they're okay, but they don't have a lot of flavor, and to me they're a little too mushy. I mean, they're so soft. Uh, especially on a younger deer. I mean, as much as I, I love to kill young deer because all the rest of it's super tender, man, the, the tenderloins are almost too soft. I mean, I like to have a little chew to my meat. And so there's a couple steaks off that front shoulder that I'll cut and I'll actually grill. Hmm. Speaking, of, uh, speaking of steaks, I feel mm-hmm. like I remember, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I remember reading a maybe it was a blog post from you at some point talking about, I don't know, it was like a chimichurri sauce or something like that. It was like a recommended steak topper that lots of people don't use or something like that. I guess first, did you write an article like that? Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. I was uh, I was lucky enough to go to Argentina earlier this year, um, and chimichurri is really big in Argentina. But I also had another sauce, and the name escapes me in my head right now. That was really good that I had in Argentina. That, um, that that's great, and it's, in, it's just a little red vinegar, some shallots or onions diced up real fine, um, and some maybe some red or green peppers diced up real fine, and it, and a little bit of garlic. Uh, it's so good. I, we had that on our steaks down there. It blew me away. And chimichurri is similar. Um, chimichurri is usually throw some garlic and a lot of parsley. And chimichurri is usually really, really green sauce from all that parsley. Um, so, yeah, those are two great steak sauces that aren't really sauces. Like, uh, you know, it's not like an A1. It's not a thick sauce or a ketchup or anything like that. It's more a really fresh, 
bright flavor that, that really complements the flavor of the venison really well, or any steak. I mean, you can use it on a beef steak too. It's, it's instead of being thick and cloying and sweet, like the barbecue or an A1 sauce or a typical steak sauce, it's more bright and fresh and really just complements it well. Yeah. So, so to that point then, in, in addition to those two, you just mentioned, I was curious, do you have any other recommended, I don't know if you want to call it a sauce or a topper or a flourish, or I don't know what garnish to, to kind of spice up your steak. Cause a lot of people, I feel like, you know, throw some salt in their steak and grill it. And if they're, after doing that, you know, 10 times a summer, they might want to kind of make things a little fresher, a little new for their next meal. Any recommendations for taking your steak to the next level? Yeah. I, for a long time, I wasn't a marinade fan because I felt like most marinades, People, you know, poured some Italian seasoning in a zip-top bag, threw a steak in there, and put it in the refrigerator for four days, thought that they were tenderizing it, and really just ended up with a mushy steak that tasted like a salad. And so I, I tended to get away from that. But there are a few really light marinades. The key is, for me, and for any marinade, is you, you really don't need to marinate a steak more than four hours because you're really flavoring it. You, a marinade doesn't tenderize a steak unless you're using yogurt or an enzyme or pineapple juice. Most uh, stuff that you use, like a, a vinegar, that's not really tenderizing. It's flavoring. So I'm kind of into some Asian flavors. I love a little soy sauce, um, a little mirin, uh, just a touch of sesame oil. Sesame oil goes a really long way, but if you put a touch of sesame oil and a little bit of soy sauce, maybe some sesame seeds, um, coriander, throw that in a quick marinade, oh, man, it's, that, that's kind of my favorite right now. That does sound very good. <laughs> I'm getting pretty hungry. And, and it's funny. I, I, yeah, I, I, get, I go in stages where, like, I'll, I'll get on an Asian kick for a long time. So, you know, for a month I'll eat all my steaks and I'll make up an Asian. So I'm just, you know, I, I don't have any hard and fast rules when I make a marinade. It's usually like, oh, man, I'm hungry. I'm gonna, what am I going to throw in a bowl with together? So I'll do some Asian flavors. And then I'll be like, oh, no, no, I like Tex-Mex. And so then I'll eat some Tex-Mex for a month or two and then I'll get sick of that. So it, it's funny. I just kind of go in stages, you know, kind of go around the world, I guess. <laughs> but, but, geez, but you know, you said that a lot of guys just do a salt on their steak and call it good. Man, for a back strap, uh, kosher salt and black pepper, that's that's about all there is to do it. But I will, I'll throw a plug in, and it's not really a plug, but I believe that I've been using it for like 15 years. There's a seasoning that's Nebraska local called Baldridge's Seasoning, and it's made by a little family in North Platte, and it is by far the best wild game seasoning I have ever tried. They, I, I, I kind of know the family, but it's not like I'm doing them any favors. I, I just believe it. So if you're ever in Nebraska, you'll be near North Platte or Ogallala. Go in the grocery store. I almost promise they have some Baldur seasoning there. You know, everybody has their favorite. There's Montreal's. There's Johnny's. It's like that. But for some reason, I wish I knew what they put in it because I'd make it myself. But I just, I just buy a big jar of Baldur's whenever I'm in the grocery store. And I go through it a ton. And I've turned people on to it all over the place. So. Man, all so right. That's well, my that's my one plug for the day. Sorry for jumping in and defending if you have any seasoning advertising. So. <laughs> we we do not. <laughs> you're you're fine. <laughs> Me and Dan will make sure to keep an eye out for that. If we're able to make I, I it was, up. I was no in no way compensated for that. I actually just love it. So <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. So how about you guys? Any any marinades or seasonings I should know about or try? I mean, that's one thing I like about when I travel to hunt. I always learn new either new techniques or new flavorings. And so let me pick your brain real quick. How about you guys? Oh. Oh, geez, you're asking the wrong guys, I think. <laughs> I don't know. I, Dan? I do olive oil and garlic. That's kind of like a, a marinade that I've used over the years. With and, and you're right, with a little bit of soy sauce. And uh, let it set for an hour or two before I throw it on the a grill. And that's what I've used in the past for, for grilling. Um, when I yeah. do my 
you know, when I do my low and slow in the crock pot, that's more of, uh, you know, chopped garlic and, uh, some salt and pepper. Uh, I, I throw some lemon pepper on there as well. Yeah. Yeah. Lemon pepper is really good. And it's funny. It's, it's those, it's funny how the two techniques, and I don't know why this is the, the hot and fast grilling, you, you kind of go with fresher, brighter flavors, but for some reason, when we think crock pot or braising or any of that slow cooking, we want these rich, deep flavors, you know? I don't know if it's because we're doing that in the winter and we want to be warm, you know? We want the Hungarian goulash and stuff like that, so we want big, thick, flavorful stuff. And in the summer, we're hot, and we just want something to, to, to you know, to chase our beer with. <laughs> but, but it's funny how, you, how, how your tongue kind of travels through these different flavor paths throughout the year. It is. It is. Uh, it's, it's kind of funny you mentioned that. We do some kind of similar things. I don't do a lot of like marinades for our steak. Usually what I end up doing is I'll, I'll just do olive oil and salt on the steak, grill it up, but then we might put some kind of like topper or sauce on it or on the side or something. So we sometimes make like an herb butter. Like my wife will mix up a bunch of herbs with some whipped butter, and then we might just put a little dollop of that on top of a steak. Um yeah. We also will put sometimes, my wife does this more than I do, she'll sometimes just pour like balsamic vinaigrette on her steak. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then something that I really like that is, you know, kind of a commonly held, um, you know, or it's a popular use is some type of berry sauce on your venison. So just the other day, I grilled up some steaks and we made a sauce. Well, first we sauteed some shiitake mushrooms, some great big shiitake mushrooms sliced up. And then we made a sauce yep. out of blackberries, fresh blackberries, uh, a dark red wine, and some butter and onions. And got that all mixed up and hot together and put that on top of the mushrooms on the steak. And that was just dynamite. Oh, yeah. that And this time of year, you know, we're starting to get some fresh berries coming off everywhere, especially you know, if you're in Montana, you should be able to find some fresh blueberries here pretty quick. And, you know, it's hard to beat some fresh blue, a fresh blueberry pan sauce on a steak. So, yeah. uh, man, that, that's just a great thing. Yeah. So. But that you know you you made a you made a point there that I want to bring up and you said you mix some herbs with the with butter you know that's that's something that's very simple to do it's called a compound butter and you can put about any flavorings you want in it um, that's a great thing I've been doing cilantro lime juice and butter and actually putting it on our fresh grilled sweet corn and it's just to die for and the thing is you can make that compound butter ahead of time and stick it in the freezer and then just cut off a little bit of it and put it on top of your steak I mean that's the secret to most great steakhouses in the world is before they bring their steak out to you they put a big old hunk of butter on it and melt it into it as they bring it to your table so uh you know they call the compound butter and make any you know any any combination of herbs or flavoring you want whip that into some butter and then and freeze it and then you'll always have a great steak topping whenever any time of year so yeah that's a that's a great suggestion the, the idea of making it ahead of time and saving it for future for future uses that's that's the way to go so um i'll, I'll tell you one thing david you have most definitely made me hungry and antsy to get out of the studio and get to dinner so <laughs> See. well that's good i hope you're having a fresh trout dinner or, or or something i don't know what my dinner plans for tonight are yet we'll see there's probably yeah. some leftovers in there you know I, I i like to think that i'm a this this well-known wild game cook but a lot of times it's cheese wrapped in a tortilla because i'm in a hurry to do something. <laughs> <laughs> the truth comes out so so that david is true. that is true so before we let you go really quick david if anyone yeah. wants to see your work to read some of your articles you know where should they go where should they look to find that stuff. Yeah. 
Yeah, so so on fieldstream.com, there's a blog called The Wild Chef that's 90% written by me, so um, you'll find my stuff there. Um, I write the, the fair game column every month in Peterson's Hunting Magazine, and that's uh, also all cooking-related. Um, if you just want general hunting stuff, yeah, Fieldstream, the print magazine, almost always has something in need by it. Peterson's Hunting, uh, Wildfowl. I'm a big waterfowler, so I love contributing to Wildfowl. And, uh, you know, I'd love for them to follow me on Instagram. Uh, it's Feral Fork is my Instagram, F-E-R-A-L Fork, F-O-R-K. And, uh, you know, that's just kind of my, my, I call that my facade. That's my curated line. That's all the cool stuff I do. You don't, you don't have to see me sitting at my computer 10 hours a day writing words out. Just see every once in a while I catch a nice bluegill or I, or I kill a nice animal and I get it on there. So follow me there or, um, you know, check me out on fieldstream.com. And, and I'd, I'd love to have people chime in whenever they want. So. Awesome. Well, uh, I will I will recommend everyone listening to follow you on Instagram if and only if you will post a picture of you eating a tortilla with cheese. <laughs> I, I will do that. I will do that. I might have to fancy it up with some salsa or something, so it's okay. not too proletarian. But I will I will definitely do that. <laughs> All right. Perfect. All right. Well, cool. This hey, man. I I really appreciate it. I was excited when you asked me to come on. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Wired to Hunt and a big fan of everything you guys do and. and so I'm really excited to be on here. I'm glad I got, I got, I got to join you guys and talk about something that truthfully I don't do enough, and that's why I get on. I, I get out for mule deer and elk and, and ducks and geese, and I try to get out a few days every year for whitetail, but uh, I always like uh, talking about it. So uh, well, We appreciate it, too. This, is, this has been a blast. We, uh, we got some good laughs, some good info, and uh, hungry stomachs. So, David, you're welcome back anytime. <laughs> Great, great. Uh, thanks, guys. And, and Dan, good luck in Nebraska. So uh, it's my it's my favorite state. It's been my home my whole life. So I'm glad you're going to come out here and do it. But as I told you before, there are no deer here, so move along, please. <laughs> <laughs> All right, David. Have a good one. We'll talk to you soon. And with that, we will wrap this one up. So before we go, we do need to take a quick second to thank our partners who help keep this podcast going. So big thank you to Sitka Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Ozonics, Carbon Express, Maven Optics, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. Thank you, thank you. And finally, thank you all for joining us today and tuning in. Hopefully you enjoy this conversation with David and our talks about the Great Plains and cooking venison and uh, even the butterfly effect. You never you never quite know where we're going to go with these things, but uh, hopefully you stuck around and enjoyed what we had to say. So until next time, thanks again and stay wired to hunt. <laughs> <laughs>